Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider. I'm Evan Grant. Uh, Kevin Sherrington is out sick. So as opposed to him making myself and David Moore sick these days, he's dealing with his own little stomach virus. So on that note, David, hello. Welcome to you. I love the sentiment. I think you could have delivered the punchline a little better, but I agree wholeheartedly with the he's sick rather than making us sick theme. And we can carry that out throughout the rest of the podcast. And, and I, you know, there's a part of me, just a part of me that wants Kevin to get well quickly, but then there's another <laughs> part of me that it's okay if he suffers with a little bit. Wants little it to bit. linger a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, at least this means that you and I will get to talk about the Cowboys a little bit. Yes, and- you, you will actually get to talk about the Cowboys. I, I, think, I think you are the largest beneficiary of this segment because otherwise – uh, Kevin, let's say, would gloss over your voice. And well, and boy, do we have a we have a lot to talk about Cowboys related wise. I um, we do. I, I will say this: I did not on Sunday afternoon. I did not at any point in time look at the score and in any way think, okay, they might they might actually lose this game. Until Dak threw that that really bad interception at the 15-yard line, uh, and then the defense showed up really big. Was was there a real concern from anybody that was at the at the stadium watching that that this team that this game was really in jeopardy? Oh yeah, at that point, uh, that interception, uh, first and goal inside the five, um, at that stage, because you figured it. A, a field goal at worst, and then it was a six-point game, which would force Dallas to go down and, and score a touchdown. Um, based on how erratically they had played over the course of that game, um, at, at that stage, it appeared Houston was going to win. And, you know, I, I immediately started thinking, too, I was projecting forward, and I just wasn't thinking about the loss that day. I was looking at it and saying, well, in essence, this makes – the final four weeks of the regular season irrelevant to Dallas. And how bad is that as far as preparing for the postseason? Um, because it's a completely different dynamic. And what what beating Houston did, look, we've talked about this before. They had to run the table uh, on these three games with Indianapolis, uh, Houston, and Jacksonville coming up this weekend. They needed to run the table on those three games to get to Christmas Eve for that game uh, for them to still have a chance to win the division and play this thing out. Uh, if Dallas would have lost to Houston, which it certainly appeared they were about to do, um, then at that point, they would have fallen three games back because right as that was going on, uh, you know, the, the Eagles were blowing out the New York Giants. So um, it, within a span of like three to four minutes there, Dallas went from being three games out with four to play and really no realistic shot of winning the division and thus being relegated to wild card to still at least having a chance to, to be viable here going forward. So um, just, just for uh, the motivation, preparation, and, and being engaged in these games meaning something, uh, th- that win was huge and, and was really unexpected based on how they had played up to that, those final uh, moments of the game. So what's the takeaway from this game, right? You survived this game. And and I think for fans, the visual is, right, you came out and you just absolutely obliterated Indianapolis, which is what you needed to do. 
Um, and you were the expectation was you're going to go and do the same thing against Houston, and, and that doesn't that doesn't materialize. But they've they've won these games. They've done what they've needed to do. They've got what I think is another trap game in Jacksonville coming up this week, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what's the takeaway from when you went out to to the star yesterday and and in the aftermath of all that? What's the what's the lesson from the for the Cowboys? Well, it's interesting. I th- I think outside the organization. Uh, people are reading too much into this close victory. Uh, there's a lot of, of wailing and gnashing of teeth and consternation and, oh, why do they continue to play down? Well, I would argue beating Minnesota 40-3 to on the road is a better precursor of what they can do in the postseason than having to come from behind against a 110-1 and Houston team. Um, and, and, you know, the, look, there are – there are bad performances, but not bad victories, right? I think every coach and athlete will tell you that. And I think fans two times, fans too often get caught up in the well, I, you know, that's really, I know they won, but it's really a loss because uh, this was exposed and this and that. You know, the, the Cowboys and the coaching staff and, and Mike McCarthy brought this point up and, and some people would dismiss it, but I think it's worth the conversation. He says, look, um, you know, our forty to three win in Minnesota gave us a lot of confidence, right? On how on beating a good team on the road—that's something you're going to have to do in the postseason. The thirty-three point fourth quarter explosion against Indianapolis did the same thing. It, it built confidence. But what we had to do to win this game is probably something we're going to have to do in the postseason. We're going to find ourselves down. It's going to come down in the final two minutes. And how do we respond? So I look at it and the players look at it as this really, we won a game in a different way, a way there's a really good chance we're going to have to win in the postseason if we want to advance. So in some ways, even though I know a lot of you are disappointed out there is what Mike McCarthy was saying, uh, in some ways, we think we actually sharpened ourselves for what we're going to do going forward. A lot of fans will look at that as a rationalization, but um, you know, and, and there are a lot of, a, no, no matter what you say before, it, I still find it remarkable how dismissive so many people are of an 11 play 98 yard drive to win the game. How can you just dismiss that and go, yeah, but he wasn't that. I mean, look how bad he was before. Well, look at what he did in going 11 plays for 98 yards and a score. And I, I, to that point, look in the last, what? Six minutes of the game, right? They had a goal line stand inside the five-yard line and yes. an 11-play, 98-yard drive. So they had a, a, a test of their middle on the defensive side, and they they stood up to that. Uh, were you surprised? Just a quick one. Were you surprised that the Texans did not kick a field goal there to make the Cowboys score a touchdown? Yeah, I was. Uh, I thought uh, because, because they struggled. You know, part of the reason they couldn't run down there is because Pierce – uh, their best running back was out, and they were handing the ball to Burkett as a and, and calling power running plays, which he is not really a power runner, certainly at this stage of his career. Uh, so I, I just felt there was such a fine line there with um, Houston. They needed to score a touchdown, right? But when they didn't, I mean, and this was fourth and three. It's not like they were. It's not like they were inside the you know in the shadow of the of the end zone here. This was a fourth and three, and that's a pretty big ask 
uh, for a team that went into the game one ten and one. So I thought it was over aggressive for for where they were. Uh, so you take the field goal there, kick off, you settle yourself, and and you know now you have a six point lead and you're forcing Dallas to go down and score a touchdown, which is a lot different because you know if Dallas would have stumbled there at the end. They eat. They gladly would have just kicked a field goal and taken it into overtime because they feel they're the better team, and they dodged. You know, they they dodged circumstances there at the end of regulation. I would. Uh, what I would counter with is, I feel like even Lovey Smith knew that the Cowboys were going to score a touchdown in that situation yeah. in that two minute drill, and knew that without a touchdown, Houston doesn't have a chance to to pull this off. Um, that certainly, if this game went to overtime, uh, if, if well. That they did, they don't have a chance to pull this off. Let's just leave it at that. If they're up by six, obviously it's a different, it, it's it's a little bit different. But I I feel like even the Texan coaching staff felt like you're not going to be able to stop Dallas in this two minute drill. Well, that might also be, you I, know, Lovey is a defensive coach. You know, he's a defensive coordinator, and they look at the game differently. I I think it may have been Ubris, and he just went well, you know. We, we've given Dak problems all day. There's no way this team's going to go 98 yards on us. So maybe they kick a field goal. But again, you also have to think of certainly they can get in field goal position and, and tie this thing up. And do we really want to do that? So just kick the field goal. You take that out of it and then turn it over to your defense. So it really didn't make much sense to me. So, all right. You come out of that with a win, and that's what you need to do. I, I, I completely agree. Um. And then you go into the, the, the start of the week, and, and the first thing we do is we see a wide, uh, a receiver signed, and it is not Odell Beckham. It is T.Y. Hilton. Um, how much does this help the receiving core, and what does this say about the whole OBJ drama, which I'm kind of guessing you're a little bit tired of at this moment. <laughs> One, you don't have to guess. Two, a little bit tired. <laughs> Let's work on your semantics there. Um, yeah, th- this this is interesting from the standpoint that the uh, the Odell Beckham uh, whirlwind tour took him to Buffalo, the New York Giants, and Dallas. Dallas is, since that tour, Dallas has signed T. Y. Hilton, and former Cowboys receiver Cole Beasley has come out of retirement to re-sign with Buffalo. So the and and. The Giants have lost another game since then, and their playoff viability is is looking much worse than what it was uh, when the Odell Beckham sweepstakes began. So the, the moves by Buffalo and Dallas show you that neither of those teams believe that he'll be read, he'll be able to contribute to their playoff run. So they want to go ahead and fortify that. I, I find it very interesting. I mean, the Cowboys' insistence on adding a receiver here to me speaks more about what they think internally. Because, you know, looking at it from the outside, it's like, well, you know, they've done a pretty good job covering for this with their three tight ends. And and yes, it would be nice to have another receiver in there, but it's not imperative. I would argue the Cowboys co- coaching staff believes it's imperative. Um, so, and I think what you're seeing here, you can incorporate a receiver more easily late in a season than you can other positions. Because Kellen Moore, you just go, look, put him give him a couple of routes that he runs that we can incorporate into our system. We'll only use him in these situations. He can get here, get up to speed on the language, but we can still spot use him. And I think what this, I think what this move says more than anything is 
you know, if we can play our game and stay to the blueprint we've had most of this season, we're fine. We really don't need much from T.Y. Hilton or James Washington, who returned the other day. But if we get in a shootout or if we're down 21 to 10 in the postseason or we find ourselves in a shootout, we've got to have another receiver in here. Noah Brown is our third receiver. Uh, while he's consistent, guys, just not going to cut it. We need more of a threat. Uh, so I think that's what it speaks to. It, you you want to be able to have, be able to play different styles offensively and their pursuit of Odell Beckham Jr. and then settling and signing T.Y. Hilton shows you they believe that, in my mind, that they're not really a team equipped to win a shootout game. And maybe now at least this gives them the chance to do that. No, I agree that you, you can bring a receiver in and say, okay, we're going to give you three specific routes. And if we need... If yeah. we need something in that vein, you know. And otherwise, he's not on the field, right? So it doesn't disrupt the balance of your offense and anything you've done to this point. Because right now, you don't need him right now if everybody stays healthy. This is a, a pretty diversified offense, and I think it can be very effective. But if you do get an injury or you do find yourself behind in a game and you've got to kind of flood the field with receivers, now you've got the ability. Um Listen. And very quickly, their biggest the biggest injury they faced here is losing Terrence Steele at right tackle, right? You know, he's going to be gone for the rest of the season. Um, Mike McCarthy was saying earlier this week he's never really had a rotation uh, at right at tackle during his career as a head coach. It may happen here. You know, you saw it in the Houston game where Josh Ball came in, played the majority of the snaps after Terrence Steele went out, but he made a couple of big mistakes late. And what did they do? They went to Jason Peters who in six weeks will turn 41 years old, and he was in on that final drive. So the question is, Peters has a more impressive resume. This is a guy who will be in discussion for the Hall of Fame once he does, uh, his career is over. But at 41, is he really a guy that can hold up for 60-plus snaps a game for the rest of the regular season and the postseason run? I believe your answer there would be no. So now it's about managing that position. And so while it's not ideal, uh, do you have Josh Ball in there to do 60% of the snaps and, and spot Peters? How do you go about it? Or do you just move another tackle over there and say, let's handle it that way? That, that's the least appealing, I think, is to move another guy because now you're talking about disrupting left tackle as well. You know, it helps a little bit that they get uh, Tyron Smith back, should get him back this week. I would anticipate uh, – he would be on a pitch count for the Jacksonville game with the idea he could move back into the lineup more on a full-time basis against Philadelphia. But how does that look? So here's an offensive line where you went 10 weeks with no changes in the starters, and now you're going to make a change at right tackle, and you're you're looking at how to incorporate Tyron Smith back in. Does that mean you, you kick Tyler Smith over? Uh, to left guard and kick Connor McGovern out of the starting lineup, who's played pretty well. So it's unusual to have a team this good have this many decisions in the offensive line this late in the season. Well, I, I, this is a this is I think just about everybody has suffered a number of injuries at this point in time, this late in the season, and it is some degree of of managing your your options. But this is a big part of why of why this team signed Jason Peters, is it not? Yes. So. Um, sure. All right. So this week it is Jacksonville, and it really is the last game of this this stretch of should win games before before you get to the Eagles. I would submit, look, that if this team is going to do what I think this team is capable of doing, and I, 
and I've said this, and I, I, I still say this after this win against Houston, that I don't see any team in the NFL that is appreciably better than the Cowboys. There are teams that can play better, but I think this team can stack up with any of them. And so if the Cowboys are going to reach what they feel is their ultimate level, which, of course, we're talking about a Super Bowl, there's two games left with Philadelphia, I would say, on the schedule. So what about the December 24th game with the Eagles is most important for you? Because it's still an uphill battle to win the division, right, David? Sure. And, and and that is how Dallas is and should view it, uh, that they will face the Eagles again. Uh, and that will come in the postseason. So do you want to go into the postseason in a game that would be in Philadelphia, having lost to the Eagles twice? Or do you want to win this game, put some doubt in the Eagles' minds, and then go, oh, by the way, remember back earlier in the season when you beat us? That was with our backup quarterback, who's not going to play in this game. Oh, and remember, it was actually a one-score game until you scored late after we had another turnover. So you want to put doubt in the mind of your opponent, right? And uh, I, I think if, if, uh, if Philadelphia has an easy win in Dallas when they're basically at, at full strength offensively here um, with Dak back, that is not a good sign for them going forward. Um, but if Dallas asserts itself and shows that they're completely and fully capable of beating Philadelphia and it's pretty evenly matched, well, the dynamic is just much different how it plays out. So, yeah, you're right. And and, and very quickly on what you're saying here, too, it, for, for all this uh, negativism that surrounds the Cowboys after this Houston game and, oh, well, but yeah, that, you know, Indianapolis was close too. And that was just a, that was a fluke on how you won that. And, and want, wanting to read something into that about the weakness of the Cowboys, I will just say this. There's only one team in the league with a better record than Dallas right now. And that's Philadelphia. So you can say Buffalo and and San Francisco and all these other teams, they don't face the same up and downs as Dallas does. They don't have a better record than Dallas. So are you still trying to tell me that there's a much of a difference there? These same sort of conversations on different levels are taking place in every other city around the NFL other than Philadelphia at the moment. So yeah, Dallas is in the mix. Uh, and that is why they really need to win this rematch or at least have a close game to show that, look, um, we're right there with you because the third game will be in Philadelphia based on what we've seen. So there's value in, in, in winning this game, regardless of how it impacts the division. No question. So, all right, let's talk about what I wrote about today. Um, baseball. Uh, and I know that this is a segment segment of the show typically where Kevin forces you out. Doesn't allow me to talk. Yes. Correct. I will engage in this segment for a rare, a rare baseball talk, and I look forward to it. So anyway, David, I went out to the Rangers toy drive um, on Monday uh, to talk with John Gray, who was running the toy drive and is literally the only member of the starting rotation that hasn't signed a new contract with the club <laughs> in the past four months. But a little bit of research that I did. And listen, this is these are we're going to talk about projections here and projections in the middle of December 
are really just nothing but talk show fodder, which is what we're doing, right? So according to fan graphs, at this point in time in the offseason, the projected war of the Rangers' starting rotation, the five guys that are in there, and we'll go DeGrom, Andrew Heaney, who the team will introduce on Thursday, John Gray, Martin Perez, and Jake Odorizzi, is 13.3. Last year, the Rangers' full rotation, the guys who, who started 162 games over the course of the year, combined for a 5.8 war. So this is a significant improvement. My question was, how big of an improvement is it compared to the rest of the league? Because the question's not whether or not this team gets better. This team has to it's get better. relative, yeah. Others are too. Not, this yeah. team becomes a contender. And, you know, you start looking at all the other moves that teams have made. Houston's lost Verlander. Um, the Angels have added Tyler Anderson. Seattle hasn't done much with its rotation, but it's added some hitters. But if you look at these numbers, according to fan graphs on this projection, the Rangers rotation is the best. Those five guys are the best war number in the American League. I, I compared it with the Yankees. Now, the Yankees are in on Carlos Rodon right now, and if they sign him, that that obviously may change that. But for me, this was a surprise, that it, it took the Rangers rotation from 26th in, the Ameri- in, in, in all of baseball last year to the top number in the American League, which I think speaks to just how good the potential is here if these guys stay healthy. You know, of course, the question is, but can they stay healthy? Sure. And the other question is, just to put in some sort of historical perspective, have they had a rotation that projected in the top five at any point recently? No, not. I wouldn't think so. uh, For a decade now, the, the rotation has been a weak spot. And obviously for 48 of 51 years in Texas, the rotation has been a weak spot. Yeah. Um, and so for me, this tells me even, even if it doesn't finish there, it, it it at least puts you in the top quarter of the league at worst case scenario, right? And probably a little ahead uh, of yeah, that. I, I think the good news about this is, look, I don't think Seattle's going to add anybody else. I don't know that the Astros are going to add anybody else. And so the Astros, you know, the subtraction of Verlander is significant. I will say that what I do think, if I'm looking at these projections and I look at, at how fan graphs determines war. I think they put a lot of emphasis on pitchers who can strike guys out. And the Rangers have that. DeGrom went healthy, led the Amer- led, led all of baseball in strikeouts per nine innings, and Andrew Heaney was second. John Gray averaged over nine strikeouts uh, per nine innings. So this team has the ability to strike guys out. And I think that's a significant weapon in the game today. When you've got runners on base and you can strike guys out and end a rally right there, not only does it, you know, potentially give you a shutdown inning and, 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 and hold a lead, but it also takes a little bit of pressure off the offense. And Lord knows this offense suffered PTSD last year because of the number of one-run losses and because of the number of leads that this that the bullpen gave up. I, I think starting pitching impacts how effective your bullpen is. I think it impacts the level of confidence that your offense operates with. And the Rangers, whether or not these guys stay healthy, they have taken. They have shot their best shot this winter at trying to take take this rotation from non-competitive to contending. And it also, again, for me, the other part of this is that you take guys like Glenn Otto, Dane Dunning, who's coming back from a hip sur- from a hip surgery, now can 
really not have to go overly aggressive, right? They can be a little bit patient with that. Mm-hmm. And Cole Reagans, and when and you slot those guys as depth options rather than guys who are starting every fifth day, you're going to need those guys eventually. And they play a lot better if they're starting 12 times or 15 times as opposed to somebody seeing them every fifth day. So I, I think the Rangers rotation is in far better shape than it's been in a long time. But it's also easy to say that in December, we will see if Jacob deGrom can give the Rangers 150 innings. We'll see if Andrew Heaney can give the Rangers 150 innings. Neither one of them got to that level last year. Sure. And, and that's that's the other thing you have to project, which you can't fully. But But the other thing I would say is, what is your new manager's strength? One of his strengths as a manager, and it's and it's handling rotations, right? And so, you you go out and you also play to what his strength has been throughout his career and makes him. And, and again, this is so. Uh, it seems so simplistic, but so often teams will hire uh, a manager or a head coach in another sport with expertise or a proven track record in a certain area, and just go well, fix this. You know, you, you've been good at it. So just kind of fix this and let us know as we nibble around the edges to to kind of get back. This was a concerted effort in my mind of, no, we know we have to get better uh, starting pitching staff. This has been a strength throughout your career. Let's just get this going right now to give you the best chance to have success and for you to get us to where we know we need to go because we're making up for lost time here. So to me, it was a commitment. As as soon as he was hired, I was fascinated to see the follow-up. And and this is very encouraging. I mean, this seems like a true organizational approach on, okay, this is it. We pinpointed it. We've addressed it. Now let's go. Well, it was hard for me to convey the level of, and I, I don't use this word lightly, but the level of disgust that I think that Chris Young had with the way the pitching staff performed last year. Far too many walks. Um, and it's one thing if you get beat. It's another thing to beat yourself. So it was very clear that pitching was going to be the number one priority far above and away this offseason. They go out and they hire, as you mentioned, Bruce Bochy, a guy who's renowned for handling pitchers, particularly in playoff series. I think, and, and Bochy has acknowledged this, right? The last time he managed, he still had the ability to use relievers for one batter and one batter only. So one thing he is going to have to make an adjustment to is how he uses those relievers um, because he's going to have to use them for at least a three-batter minimum or to finish an inning. But if your starters are, give, if your starters are giving you reliable innings, it makes managing that part of the game that much better. Your second move is to go out and hire Mike Maddox as your pitching coach, a guy who may be old school in this day and age when it seems like we have to debate whether somebody's old or new school. But what Mike is great at is instilling confidence in his pitchers, in game planning for how you attack hitters, and in um, the idea of just kind of creating an identity. The idea of pitch design and biomechanics, quite frankly, for me, that shouldn't enter into the conversation when a guy is in the middle of the fourth inning and he's got two guys on base and he's sweating. It should all be about belief and conviction. They can handle those other things in between starts and they will have more staff there. But it all just speaks to the idea that, yes, this club made pitching, starting pitching a priority, followed through with both the infrastructure for the manager the pitching coach, and now the pitchers. And now with all of that done, I think the Rangers turn their their attention to 
adding one more bat. Um, I still think that there is a free agent out there that they will add to, to the lineup. And that, for me, probably Michael Conforto is the leading candidate. Um, I think he would he would really thicken out the lineup. Uh, I think he fits in a lot of ways. I think he's still going to have to prove to people that he's he's over his injury, can, can throw and play the field. Uh, and if so, I, th- I think sometime probably after the first of the year, he's going to sign. And I think the Rangers remain a really strong candidate there. And there's still some finishing out in the bullpen that needs to be done. Matt Moore was really good last year, and I think the Rangers want him back, and he would like to be back. I think they'd probably like to see if they can find a veteran right-handed reliever too. So there's still work to be done. But from my perspective, the season ended October 5th, right? You had to find a manager. You had to do stuff with your pitching staff and create – I mean, do stuff with your coaching staff and create an entire starting rotation. And the Rangers have accomplished that before Christmas in a significant manner. So uh, it's been a very good offseason for the Rangers – but I think, as I said from San Diego, you know, it's not about how you win the offseason. It still comes down to whether or not you win games. Sure. And and so so your checklist and priority, it would be adding a bat, would be top of that list, and then filling out the bullpen would, would come after that as far as your, your, how, how you rank the needs. If, if, in, if, if I'm doing it in a linear fashion, that would be the way I'd look because I still think the biggest investment is going to be the bat. Now, whether or not the trade market starts to turn and there are more realistic options out there, that's another story. And you have to act on that when it presents itself. I do not think Pittsburgh outfielder Brian Reynolds is going to be a play for the Rangers. He's a really good player and there's a lot of control there. But I think that the Rangers would have to give up from a level of prospects that they are not willing to touch. And that's Owen White, Evan Carter, um, even you know Josh Young in that group, so I don't think they're willing to go there for for that player. Um, and Ray Davis has shown that he's willing to to flirt or go over the two hundred million dollar payroll mark. And if he is willing to do that, go out and keep stocking up and and, and holding on to as many prospects as you possibly can. There's some forty man complications, but look, you can always. You can always go. You don't need to worry about how much over the barrel you are in terms of leverage at the back end of your forty man rotation. Put the best team that you can on the field. That that that's the most important thing. Well, and again, and to be here and you're looking about finishing out your roster rather than still needing to make a key move or two that will allow you to finish out the roster is significant for them. They they've done the heavy lifting. That doesn't mean it's over but they've done the heavy lifting this off season. No. And that's, I, I just want to emphasize that, that at every point in time, when I have texted with somebody after one of these transactions and said, you have done a lot of heavy lifting. The response has come back. We're not done. We still have work to do. And this is not a complete roster. They know it. And Chris Young, again, for those who weren't listening at any point in time, since the end of the season said at the Jacob deGrom press conference, we expect, to push for the playoffs in 2023. Bruce Bochy said directly, do not tell us we cannot win. So that's what the expectations are. But but if you do the heavy lifting up front and make the major moves you need, it's then you don't chase the rest of free agency, right? You don't right. get anxious. You don't overreach and go, uh, I really had this as a second-tier guy, but we missed all of our front-tier 
top tier guy. So now we have to go make this move. Now you can just sit there and make moves you're convinced about to fill this out versus chasing something because you lost out on something else. All winter, the Rangers have acted as opposed to reacting. And that, yes. that is a good place to be. All right, let's, um, let's move on to, to the college scene for a minute. And it's uh, not great topics that we have to talk about today. Um, but I, I, and neither one of us had personal experience. This was, this was one of the few times today that I was hoping Kevin would be around. But um, none of us had real experience with Mike Leach. But I, listen, as a football guy, I think you're, you're well aware beyond the personality that Mike Leach brought to the field, what kind of innovation he brought uh, in terms of the passing game and how that's filtered really up to the NFL in some way. NFL ways. for sure. Yeah. He, he, he was, he was ahead of the curve and you're, you've seen his influence, not only in college football, but in what you're seeing at the pro level now, um, you know, he, Let's even take it to the New England Patriots. And everyone talks about, you know, Bill Belichick and his influence, which is undeniable. He's taken components of what Mike Leach was doing offensively and, and incorporated into what the Patriots have done. So, um, you know, there, there are always certain coaches who, while they don't dominate their sport particularly or um, create dynasties with their, with their ideas they're ahead of the game and they move the game forward. And that's what Mike Leach was offensively. He was a guy who moved the game forward. Um, I mean, look at the template of the quarterback while he was at Texas Tech. And now it's just a given. Those are sort of, you know, those are, uh, that's the prototype. Of those are the sort of influences and the style uh, that's going to translate to, to go up to the next level. So uh, really ahead of his time in that, very entertaining. You know, the, the, the people I know who have dealt with Mike Leach, he could be difficult to deal with at times, but everyone enjoyed dealing with him. Um, he, he was something, I, I think the whole creative genius, you know, and temperamental genius is, is overused in sports a lot of time. But there is something with a creative mindset that, that looks at things differently, um, that keeps them engaged and kind of keeps you engaged along the way as well. And, and, and Mike Leach certainly seemed to be that sort of person. And, and by and large, the people I know who dealt with them in the media uh, really enjoyed their, their, their discussions with him. I, I think one thing, you know, when you cover, when you cover a beat and when you've been around for a while, I think one thing that people don't quite realize is we ask the same questions an awful lot and get the same answers and they, they don't ever say anything. And so when you get somebody who says something unpredictable and it may not answer the question, but it may be a funny one liner, you do appreciate that because, Hey, it's good copy, right? It's a, it, it, that's just what it is. And I, I watched, I forget which Mississippi state game it was that I was watching this year and he did a walk off. I want to say it was the Alabama game and it was, it was the first half, did a walk-off at the end of the first half. And the, the interview was basically um, nonsensical, but came back and everybody in the broadcast booth was laughing because, you know, it was Leach had given some life to one of these otherwise incredibly dull, useless moments about where a, a coach basically says, yeah, well, we got to make some adjustments and play better in the second half. Yeah. And like I said, I think that goes to mindset too, right? I, I think there are, I think Mike Leach got bored 
with what he saw on the football field and wanted to approach it differently. And that generated some, some renovations in the game. Uh, and I, I think it's the same in answering the same questions about the game. I think it was just that paradigm and that model uh, he just kind of broke out of. And and because he got bored, he got bored answering the questions. So I'll just go off-roading here and, and give you something. I don't, who cares if it makes sense? Um, and, but, but he was true to who he was, right? You know, you, you never got to, some, I think some coaches really get, I don't want to say trapped in their persona, but really get into, reinforcing whatever their persona is and if like if they're uh, considered a, a, a you know very creative or ahead of the curve they always play into that uh, you know I have my PhD in football and here let me show you about it. it it was always more playful with him you you knew he was but he wasn't he was more interested in being colorful and explaining his thoughts in a way that didn't necessarily aggrandize him like like some coaches would I have appreciation for coach. There's too many coaches and managers that I've dealt with over the year who want to let you know that they are only coaches and coaches only, and that they have no interest outside of the football field um, or the baseball field. And quite frankly, they feel like they're one dimensional people. I, I think I have a great deal of, I don't want to say respect, but I, I do enjoy dealing with people who express interest in other things. When I went to visit with Bruce Bochy last month in Nashville, and we talked bourbon, we talked old TV shows, uh, we talked. Um, Did you travel. drink bourbon or just talk bourbon? No, we drank a little bit of bourbon. It was <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, I just want to make sure. We sipped what's, a little. What's bit. the point of just talking about bourbon? You've got we, to actually sample the bourbon, bourbon you're talking about. Absolutely, I will say this. I think I might have said this on the podcast previously, but he introduced me. I had not had Wellers, and he introduced me to Wellers, and I am now a big fan. So. Um, that was, that was fun, but that I, I do like that when you can bring personalities, like a th when you bring real dimensions to who these people are, because they are at the end of the day, people. And I think, I think guys who see that, that they are people and not, not, I am coach or I am, I am the skipper all the time. Uh, they're more well-rounded. Um, when you, you can take your job seriously and not yourself seriously. And, and I'm not saying that from the standpoint that you don't have self-respect, but if you take yourself too seriously, then you're constantly trying to portray that image to others, right? To show how good you are at what you do. And it is kind of a, it just kind of, you know, traps you in that mindset. And so I, I think there's a difference in putting your ego in your job and putting your ego in your persona. And uh, to, to me, he's a guy who put his ego into the job. Mike Vick, the, the, the um, son of the of the late Chicago White Sox owner Bill Beck and one of the greatest showmen in baseball said in his autobiography, "I take my job very seriously, but my myself not at all." And 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 you, we appreciate people who who can can show that element of it. Um, so our our condolences to the Leach family, and uh, he will be missed in in. in in football and in life and in, in, in this personality that he was, it has been, um, I, I have watched Twitter, which obviously is where we go now to express all our feelings. Um, but the outpouring of, of people who said that they were touched in some way by the, their experience that was vivid with Mike Leach is, is, has, has been remarkable to me. 
The other thing we had on the college front, David, to, to talk about is um, is all is troubling. Is uh, the accusations and the arrest of, of Chris Beard at the University of Texas, the basketball coach at the University of Texas, on a domestic violence case on on Monday. Um, he's been suspended. Texas acted quickly in that regard before they played Rice. Um, but from where you sit, David, based on you know, the arrest affidavit, the, the, the case, what happens now? Is, is, is Chris Beard done at Texas? That, that will be the conversation, uh, certainly, that the, that the uh, school is undergoing right now. Um, you know, he and his attorneys say this is 100% false. Uh, we have audio to back it up. But when asked to produce the audio, they refused at this stage. Um, I mean, people in law enforcement and the court systems will always tell you domestic violence cases um, are very difficult. And, and and as far as proof and, and pursuing going forward are the hardest cases to do consistently um, just because of the nature of domestic violence. And it's about a relationship uh, between two people uh, or a def- a dysfunctional relationship, I'd say, in these cases. Um, but the, the, the thing here to me is what troubles me even more a lot of times when these cases arise in sports is the focus immediately turns to, oh, what does this mean for the team? I mean, look, you, you know, Texas has beaten three ranked teams. They got up to number two. They're at number seven now. Um, yes, where, where, the Longhorns are for the rest of the season is in a state of flux now and unsettled, but that's not the driving force on this. This is, this is about what about, you know, Chris Beard and, and and those close to him. What about, uh, the children, you know, the families that have entrusted, uh, the development of their children to this coach and this program going forward. Uh, to me, that's where the emphasis is, and 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 how pervasive these cases are, even more so than we you know often talk about it. I mean, there's there's any number of story angles to pursue, right? You can you can pursue like what does this do to the team? You can pursue Rodney Terry's position as the interim coach or the acting coach. Sure. Uh, but for me, the the overwhelming story right now is how does Texas handle this beard situation how does texas deal with chris beard's future employment um what message must be sent and how does it impact you know his family's welfare um those are the important things right now that are that are hard for me to get past i i know texas came back and beat rice last night on the basketball court and i think for their players that was that was a good respite uh on a very turbulent day but uh, quite frankly, it's just not where my it's it's not where my interest or my my head lies right now. It's more than one in loss records. It's it's about this is about people. And you you've asked Chris Beard to be look. You've asked him to win games, but the bottom line is you're also trusting, as you said, you're trusting um, the growth of eighteen and nineteen year olds to him. And this is a really serious accusation and something that that can't be can't be swept under the table. And leaders of an organization, that organization is tied to their image, right? And, and the image they present. 
and to do nothing, then the university would have to answer that. The other reason these cases are so difficult, too, is because oftentimes um, the person who made the original complaint will withdraw it and say, I don't want to pursue it. Now, that used to be fine. It's not anymore. Law enforcement says, well, no, we just don't drop these, even if you are reluctant uh, to press charges going forward. The initial call has been made. It's in the system now. We need to handle this. And that's because people who deal with this uh, on a day-to-day basis believe that is the best way to deal with it, because that's the cycle of domestic abuse, that that it happens. Uh, the, the victim will, because of the codependent relationship, will pull back and go, oh, no, uh, I overreacted that, you know, we can work this out sort of thing. That's a pattern that repeats itself time and time again. So um, it, it's, it's going to force the, the university to deal with this. And it goes beyond whether charges remain in place or not. Uh, and that's just the that's the messy reality of, of domestic abuse. Well, one of the one of the. Yeah. The message that gets sent here, Chris Beard is one of the most high-profile employees of the University of Texas. Yes. And the overarching message that gets sent here, depending on how you deal with this, is whether or not it's a safe place to send your children. Uh, I mean, that's that's just the underlying message that, that, that gets sent there. How will the university deal with a situation in which family members have potentially been placed in, in, in jeopardy by a high-ranking official at, at this state institution. So it is a complicated situation. What does it say if you do nothing? Yeah. And what does it say if you do nothing at this level, but at lower levels, you have taken action? So right. there are all kinds of questions that get to uh, employer-employee consistency and relationships and, and how you're, uh, the, the image you want to portray uh, to your constituency. And just, and just what is the right thing to do? Uh, yes, I mean that 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 should be first and foremost. But be, we also yes. know where where boosters and college athletics are involved. It often becomes about survival sometimes instead of uh, about what's right and wrong. So enough um, enough morality from from me and you. Um, uh, we'll, we'll we'll end this episode. I do want to mention that we are hoping actually on the college basketball front to have. Baylor coach Scott Drew with us uh, for a special episode later this week. Um, bonus edition, as we like to call it in the business, Evan. Bonus edition of Sports Day Insider. Maybe even Kevin will will be healthy enough to join us for that. So, um, I've enjoyed speaking with you today, David. It's it's been it's been a rest. It's, it's been this it's is been the a- longest we've actually had a chance to converse. Actually, normally one of us gets shut off for it's ten to fifteen nice minutes of the podcast. Um, but we do hope Kevin gets better eventually. We do, yeah. And hopefully he will. Hopefully he'll be back with us for a special edition on Thursday. Until then, thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it.